This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. It gives me great pleasure to introduce the Vice-Chancellor of Charles Sturt University, Professor René Leon. I'm going to start off by asking René to briefly describe to us uh, her journey, both professionally and as a learner. So Renee, tell us about yourself. Thanks, Judith. Really pleased to be with you today. Uh, I, I grew up in Sydney and I uh, went from school to university at the University of Sydney initially. And this was in the days prior to um, demand-driven places at university where only a very small number of people went to university, but I was just at the beginning of the Whitlam government liberation of higher education for uh, the young people of Australia. So I benefited from a university education at a time when not many people had, and I was certainly the first in my family to go to university as many people of my generation are. Um, I ended up finishing my degree at the university at ANU, when I moved to Canberra. So I started arts and law at the University of Sydney, but I finished it at uh, the Australian National University in Canberra. And as many graduates of ANU did, I took up a role in the Australian public service. And I took up that role because I, I, at the, you know, towards the end of your degree, all of the law firms come around offering jobs for graduates and they all sounded exciting and interesting and obviously pretty well paid for an impoverished university student. Um, but the people from the Attorney General's department came and talked about the kind of work they did, which for me as quite a social justice activist and someone who'd studied and specialised in human rights law, I was very attracted to the idea that our job as a lawyer in the public service could actually make a difference mm -hmm. in a way that um, representing individual clients in, um, in, in a private practice didn't seem that it would, though of course I now know there are plenty of great test cases where you get to make a difference in that way as well. Um, but in any event, I joined the public service and I loved it. I loved it that I was close to the big social and political issues of the day. I loved it that I got to bend my mind to matters that would actually make a difference in the lives of the country and I ended up staying first in the Attorney General's department for something like 15 years and then uh, when I moved to the ACT government I headed the ACT Department of Justice and Community Safety so I got a taste for making a difference at scale and being able to contribute to the uh, running of the government of the territory, but also to the creation of an organisation that would be a effective, high-performing organisation that was a great place to work, which has become a lifelong passion of mine about creating a working environment where people um, love their jobs, love coming to work, get to do things that matter to them and are 
effective and successful in achieving organisational goals. That's certainly what I'm trying to do at Charles Sturt. Um, I later became uh, the Secretary of the Department of Employment for the Commonwealth Government and then the Secretary of the Department of Human Services. So all up, I was a secretary for nearly seven years and then I left the public service after a nearly 30-year career, all of which was incredibly satisfying and rewarding and, and after which I still had a great desire to continue to make a difference in ways that were beneficial to the nation uh, and to the people of Australia or the world for that matter, and, um, and to contribute my knowledge of organisational leadership to creating high-performing organisations that are a great place to work. So can I ask you a question about the transition from working in government uh, where there's a bureaucratic rationality, where there are systems and processes in place, where there's a political imperative to going into a, a complex university like Charles Sturt. And I've had a long affiliation with Charles Sturt, both when I was at Sydney University and Macquarie University, sitting on appointment committees, promotion committees. And I've got a high deal of respect and high regard for what Charles Sturt is doing and the role that plays in, in communities. But from you stepping into a leadership role during a very challenging time, what were your first sort of observations and your first sort of um, sense of what my, my training was in anthropology, what's happening here? Look, honestly, it's a study for an anthropologist, university life. Um, so the great similarity between people in universities and people in the public service is that they are both communities of people who care passionately about what they do and who are highly motivated by the public good. So um, people in the public sector, as in universities, are all being paid a lot less than they probably would be with their level of qualifications and knowledge if they were in a, in a for-profit business. But we do what we do because we actually care passionately about it and we want to contribute to the public good. And that is very satisfying commonality between university and the public service, mm -hmm. um, that commitment to public good. And as you know about Charles Sturt, it's very highly motivated by the mission of opening up opportunities for people in the regions and for enabling the opportunities of higher education to be made available to whole cohorts of both young people and mid-career people who might not otherwise get those benefits and whose, whose communities in the regions wouldn't get the benefits that our highly skilled and more educated um, population brings you. Um, I was surprised to find though, that the, uh, the kind of, as you refer to the sort of systems and processes that make a large bureaucracy hum along effectively are just not as well developed in the higher education sector. And I don't think that's only Charles Sturt. I think it does just reflect the history of the sector as having grown out of our, you know, essentially schools and faculties that were self-managing and that weren't necessarily that interested in administrative processes because what they're interested in was their discipline. Yeah. And so the processes of universities have grown up in a different way to the processes of most large and complex organisations that have a certain similarity between both private and public sectors about having a drive towards efficiency. 
And, you know, sadly in the university sector, because of the, because of the history of funding pressure applied by governments to push down the amount of funding that universities get, including just the amount per student, um, efficiencies has come to have a very negative connotation as, as if it's just a euphemism for budget cuts mm. instead of uh, actually it's a way of not needing to cut your budget because you can do things more efficiently and in a way that will cause you less grief and um, and be and just be better for everyone concerned. So I certainly hope I get to bring a bit of that into Charles Sturt and that I hope it will then become a beacon for the rest of the university sector that might not have um, yet embraced a love of efficient processes as to how you can free up academics to do what they actually love by liberating them from committees and forms and bureaucracy that's, you know, bureaucracy that even the bureaucracy doesn't have anymore, I have to say. So if you reflect on the first, the, the first six months in the role, um, universities move with glacial speed. How did that impact on what you wanted to do? So, um, I, of course, in my first six months, I did spend a lot of time listening and learning because I, I acknowledge that I'm new to the sector and that the last thing anyone needs is some newcomer to come in who thinks they've already got all the answers and start telling people what to do. And so I do have a very healthy respect for people who've dedicated their life to the pursuit of academic study and teaching and I did of course want to learn from them somewhat hampered I might say by the fact that we were all in lockdown and so there just wasn't that opportunity to go and hang out in people's offices or have a coffee with them and just chew the fat and so you know the listening and learning was all a bit zoom mediated which I'd have to say wasn't as good as it would have been if we could have all just done a bit more hanging out but in any event um I I did have to temper my enthusiasm for rapid turnaround of um, change and to recognise that I needed to first do a bit of streamlining of processes and investment in shared direction before I could really expect that things would all just move rapidly in a new direction. Um, and and I think that that's been the right thing to do, that you just you have to listen to how the system that you're in works. doesn't mean you then have to be a captive to it because I think there's room for improvement about how the university systems work. But I want to bring people with me on this journey of change and to do that, you have to listen at least as much as to speak and that's what I'm trying to do. Um, the great thing about wanting to take a university on a change mission of increasing student satisfaction and student success and research success is that you've got no fight with your people about the goals. We mm. all share those goals. It's not as though I'm, I am, you know, trying to take them in a direction that they don't believe in. We all share the goals that we want our students to succeed and we want them to have a great time at university and we want to lift ourselves up in the research stakes because people you know are passionate about exploring their discipline and so that shared direction certainly makes it much easier to get people aligned in well here's the things we're going to need to do 
in order to achieve that. One of the things that is a bit different about universities to the public service is about the attitude to money. And I noticed this in public commentary about universities as well. In the public service, everyone perfectly understands where the money comes from. You know, there's not any illusions about money, that there is some kind of magic bucket somewhere that management's just refusing to give to you or something like that. There's um, everyone at every level in the public service understands there's a, there's a Commonwealth budget and the budget's allocated to departments to deliver certain outcomes and the department's then aligned to, to deliver those things. That's what your job is, is to deliver the things that you funded to deliver. There's a much more murky understanding of where the money comes from in in universities. Um, Isn't it a log? Yeah, exactly. There is a, there's a hollow log in the vice chancellor's office out of which it's all dispensed. <laughs> I sort of feel I should invite people in to inspect and see it's not there. And there's also this, I think, quite bizarre idea that has got into the public mind that university management is only interested in profit and is sort of greedy profit makers. I don't, I, I don't know how this has come about or persisted because, of course, universities are not for profits. Mm. There are no shareholders. There is no, there is no profit. Mm. The only thing you can spend any surplus you have on is the university. So every dollar that you make actually goes back into teaching or research. That's all it's for. So, um, so I am trying to create a awareness amongst the entire staff of the university that there isn't some bifurcation between what we're actually trying to achieve, the real business of the university, the academic outputs of the university, and the management of the university, because the management of the university only exists in order to achieve those outcomes. Great education and research outcomes. And therefore, we have all have the same interest in the budget. And that in fact, the academics are the product that we are selling. So it's not as though they're separate from the budget. They drive the budget. Everything they do determines whether we attract students, we attract research grants, we keep our PhD students through to completion, then we get funded for them. We get our students through to completion and therefore we uh, get the benefit of government funding for their whole place. All of that is an academic activity, not some separate thing that's being done by someone else. And it's a bit of a novel um, way to approach it, I gather, because most of the commentary that I read around the sector treats the budget of the university as if it was something sort of magical held by management and nothing to do really with the academics. So I might be bold going there, Judith, but I am endeavouring to get all of us lined up to the fact that to be successful as a university, we do have to maximise the income coming in so that we can spend it on great research including infrastructure, if we ever make a surplus, we can put away for it, and, um, and great teaching experiences. And that's some of what I'm trying to do by way of simplifying the way we do things is in order to free up academic time 
so they can spend more time doing what they're great at, which is looking after our students and pursuing their research. Are you getting cut through and getting people to understand what's a pretty clear message? I think so. I mean, you know, um, I'm not... I'm not going about this without listening to what real concerns of staff are because there's no point, no CEO is going to get anywhere if you just come in and thump on your pulpit and make a speech and then it, and not listen to what the concerns of staff are. And staff have told me consistently through staff surveys and through meetings that I have with them that they feel really overworked and overburdened with work and I've listened to them and we are adjusting the workload allocation model to more properly reflect the time that their teaching actually takes. But we've spelled out for them, you know, really clearly data-based, you know, this is an evidence-based organisation, that the way we're going to pay for that is by more teaching efficiency. And so there's data to underpin this, but we need them on board to make their teaching practices more efficient and effective because that will free them up from wasteful practices and it will also give their students a better experience if their teachers are not burned out and disgruntled. So it is, I think it's a win-win and staff are really appreciative of the fact that they've been heard about workload and that we're helping them. We're not just giving them a budget cut and saying, well, you'll have to just sort that out yourselves. We're working with them about how to embed good teaching practices and good assessment practices that they've had an input to that are better for their students and that are better for them. And, and I think my public service background about how you organise things for greatest cost benefit effectiveness is helpful around this because, you know, in the sector there's just a much higher degree of casual workforce than anyone thinks is desirable and what people say about it in the board is things like well it's the only way we can afford to do it you know it's just we our funding's been screwed down so much that now we can't afford anything other than casuals but that's if you only look at the inputs not the outputs so the data shows us that you know although I completely recognise and respect the commitment and dedication of our casual staff. The reality is if you only pay people by the hour for certain tasks and not very well, then they'll probably only do those hours and those tasks. Whereas if you put people and they'll be disgruntled the whole time and student experience is not as great with not very well looked after um, insecure, disgruntled staff. So that if we put more of our, which we're now doing, if we put more of our casual staff onto proper paid jobs, yes, it will cost us a bit more, but we believe that the benefits of it will pay that back because we'll get greater student retention, we'll get greater student completions, we'll have higher staff engagement, more discretionary effort, and that should pay for itself now. Ask me again, I suppose, in five years if that's occurred. But that piece about taking a broader view about what are the costs and what are the benefits is something that we do a lot in the public service because a lot of the time the benefits that you're getting from a, a social or policy investment are not easily counted. They're not just like more sales. You have to be able to 
do some thinking about the broader benefits to see that a certain spend is worth it. And that's what we're doing at the university about how we manage our workforce in a way that I hope is going to be good for them, but also good for the university's bottom line. Can I return to your own experience as a student? Yes. And, and what, what your experience was like both at Sydney University, where I spent 12 years of my life as an academic, and I've also done some work at the ANU, two quite fundamentally outstanding universities. But what, what was your experience like and what did you take from that experience that you've carried with you throughout your career? So my university experience was a wonderful one. And I should say I did my postgraduate um, studies, you know, a decade later at Cambridge and it was an equally wonderful experience and for similar reasons. And that is because... I actually was on campus at both Sydney Uni and at the Australian National University and in Cambridge. I spent my days in the university. I went to class and then after class, I hung out with other students and we talked about ideas. And of course, as a school leaver, you know, I learned about life and had my brain expanded, not only about the things I was studying, but just about the diversity of people I was mixing with and the and you know the hotbed of political activism that Sydney University was and um and so it was an immersive experience as a student. Um, uh, we actually did sit around outside the library and talk about the meaning of life and and what I've taken from all of that is not only the the material that I learned at university, which of course has equipped me to do the work that I've done and to, and to make the contributions that I've had. But the, the feeling of having your brain expanded, the feeling of thinking new thoughts, the imperative to be able to justify your thoughts by reference to either some sort of evidence or some train of logic and analysis, and that those habits of thought really, more than any fact that I ever learned, are what has underpinned my career and I think still enable me to make a contribution. Um, particularly at Cambridge, I've benefited from the college system so that although I was studying at, um, at the School of Law, um, I spent my days with the brain's trust of every possible discipline. I talked about astronomy. I talked about physics. I heard about film and architecture and geography and you know many disciplines outside my own that then filled out my potentially otherwise narrow legally informed analytical thinking to just think much more broadly about all the dimensions of every problem and um you know that's what a university life should give you and I do worry that if I you know my own children are now university students, but their experience is very different from mine. Even if they were to go to university all day, the place is not humming with other students. Everyone comes to their lectures and then has to go off to their paid work. Um, after the pandemic, many people have just stayed online. And even if they could come to a lecture, they don't. The poor lecturers turn up and everyone's got their laptop in front of them and how would they know if the students are actually looking at the lecture notes or on their Facebook page? So, you know, I think both social media and, and the, 
the imperatives to earn to support themselves through education and meaning that many university students are not having the immersive educational and life expanding experience that I had when I went to university. So what sort of student experience do you want your students at Charles Sturt who, who are, some of them are, are residential, some of them are, you know, live at home? So we do have a very high number of our students who are, and always have been, even before the pandemic, who are studying online. And many of these are people who already have a job or um, kids or both. And so online is the only way they're going to be able to get a degree or upgrade their skills with a postgraduate qualification. And so for them, I want to make sure that it is easy to do and not a struggle, you know, that our that our learning systems work, that support's available even though they're doing it after hours, that we produce things that are um, interactive and, and um, stimulating and educationally worthwhile for them, even though they're doing it at home while the kids are asleep or after work and so on. So we are really investing in trying to make the online experience for all of our students who could be, they might be here in Bathurst or they might be out west of Burke, but either way it has to be a great online experience for them where they get to really um, get the opportunities that, um, and that a qualification will bring them. And so they're not necessarily going to get the immersive experience, but I do want to, for the students who are studying online but in our footprint, to give them opportunities to come to the campus if they can and if they want to so that they do get that um, in-person support and the opportunity to engage with the rest of university life. For our on-campus students, we are really trying, but I have to say it's not easy to rebuild campus vibrancy um, because we've, we are up against the decline in numbers that happens whenever there's jobs for absolutely everyone who wants one, which you will have seen at the moment that domestic demand is quite soft because the economy is so strong, um, uh, but also because of the way in which students have now taken to this studying online piece that, you know, if they don't have to get out of their pyjamas and come in, then they maybe won't. Uh, and so then when anyone does come in, only half the class is there. And to get my staff back onto campus as well, to make it so that the place is humming with staff and students. And that's, I think all workplaces are struggling a bit with getting staff back, and we are as well. And, um, and so it's still a work in progress, creating that immersive student experience. But that's definitely what we want and what we are trying to create, an opportunity for for students to come to the campus and not only mingle with their teachers but mingle with each other because humans are social animals and it grows our social ability and it grows our brains to talk about things with other people and to be exposed to a diversity of ideas and views and and whether online or on campus that's what I want our students to have not just to get a piece of paper at the end but to have their mind expanded and their life expanded. What challenges and opportunities do you see for higher education in the next three to five years? Well, of course, it's a very 
exciting time with the government having embarked upon the major review that the Accord panel is undertaking. And so it's time of great opportunity. Um, I would like, I mean, I think the, the university sector has not for a long time been recognised as an investment rather than a cost. You know, that whole narrative about trying to save money on university education is, I think, a flawed one. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know governments have got budget pressures and you can't spend everything you want on everything, but to not invest in the skills of the current and future workforce would be madness. And so it's not it's not just a drain on the budget, it's an investment in the prosperity and well-being of the nation. So I'd like to see governments and our communities think about education in that way. And we're not helped by the narrative that has become somewhat embedded in the media and was aided and enabled by governments of the past, that universities are just sort of greedy profit takers when it's just simply untrue. We're not for profits. Every single dollar we get, we spend on education and research. So that's all that we do. Um, and they're all wholly public good. There's not anything about that that you wouldn't want to invest in and get the benefits from. Um, so the challenge that we face is the risk that that, that cost-cutting mentality will continue because decades of cost-cutting have have meant that it's difficult for universities to provide that really satisfying, immersive experience for students. Um, it's Yes, we are all constantly trying to squeeze our costs and, and support our bottom line, but that's because the funding is so marginal now, and it's particularly marginal for a regional university like Charles Sturt, which, um, of course, is operating in thinner markets than the big metropolitan universities are, but is also running multiple campuses that are not hubs and spokes. They are each separate campuses. So you can study a full range of courses at Wagga or at Bathurst um, or at Port Macquarie or whatever. And we need to be able to support the demand in those areas for a comprehensive university curriculum when there's not necessarily going to be enough students at every campus to support face-to-face -face teaching and your own tutor that you can meet with personally and all of those things that would give people the really high quality educational experience that helps them to be a success. Um, and, and the research that our staff can do and want to do that will be solving the problems of the regions and of the nation, but is so woefully under supported by government. And there's so many little fictions about that, that, you know, universities get funded for half the research, but they're expected to put their own money in for the other half. And I always say, what own money? <laughs> what own money? The only money that we get, really, get, universities get a small amount of money from philanthropy and from industry partnerships, but it's 10% it's of total funding. It's not very much. It's not making up for the 50% of research funding that's unfunded and the funding per student to teach is now only for the teaching with no extra amount on top of that that is assumed to be put into research. So the fiction that there's some own university funds to fund 
all of that unfunded research is I, I hope the accord process is going to just expose some of the truths about university funding. We were all castigated during the pandemic because the um, collapse of international student numbers demonstrated the foolishness of universities in this business model that relied upon international students, a business model that is absolutely essential to the government's policy settings, otherwise they would have to fund research. So, you know, the challenges that we face really are that there's a lack of proper narrative and understanding about the role and function and benefit of universities, and therefore there's been an ability for governments to continue to run this story that they just won't properly fund them. And so that's the, both the challenge and the opportunity. I mean, the opportunity, of course, compared to when I went to university, is that now nearly every family knows someone who's gone to university and is benefiting from it. So the idea that it's just an elitist pursuit that most of the population doesn't care about is no longer true and increasingly will no longer be true because so many of the jobs of the future and of the present for that matter really require a higher degree and therefore many, many more people will feel they've got a stake in a well-funded and well-supported university system. Two more questions. First one is, if you could make one change to support students, what would it be? Um, better living allowance. I would, you know, I would put up the amount of money that they get to live on from the government so that they don't have to work 30 hours a week while also trying to study. Um, you can't even get um, independent rate youth allowance until you're 22 or some ridiculous, 23, some age like that, by which time you've already finished your undergraduate degree. Um, and the amount, you cannot live on it without also working. And so as a result, we're seeing more and more students not do a full-time load. So it takes them years to finish their degree. Um, they come out with uh, enormous debt, which calculations of many degrees show is going to take them their whole working life to pay off unless they, you know, manage to get into a very high paid job. And they don't get to come to university and spend time immersing in the experience of university life and thinking and having their brain expanded. And so the one thing I would do is increase youth allowance and Oz study so that students can afford to do what I did. I worked about 10 hours a week when I went to university. And so I'm still supporting myself, but you could. And 10 hours a week, you can do just a couple of shifts on the weekend and you're done. Not like my daughter is working, you know, four hour shifts, five days a week. How can, you know, she leaves you, she goes to university for her lecture and immediately leaves to go back home to work. So that's what I would do. Give students an opportunity to actually be students. My last question is back to you, is what advice would you give to your younger self? And what advice would you give to the next generation of, of, of leaders coming into universities? It's about stay broad. You know, multidisciplinarity is really the answer to the complex problems, not only that our societies face, but also that each individual will face in our lives and in our careers. And to not just take a narrow focus on a single um, way of thinking or a single discipline, or so you can't all study five degrees, but while studying, 
you know, keep the things that you study sufficiently broad that what you're learning will be informed by a multitude of ways of thinking. And also, just in a practical sense, you never really know where your career will take you. And the broader your base is, the better you'll be at whatever you do, but also the more options you'll have about what you do. This has been a really wonderful conversation for me. I hope that you've enjoyed it as much and keep up your strong advocacy for higher education, but in particular, the role of rural universities so, and regional universities. I look forward to us meeting face-to-face -face sometime at Universities Australia. Thanks so much, Jude. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education. Candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning. Visit studiosity.com.